Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 16. If you're able, I invite you to stand as we read this. And then following that, we will together read our congregational reading that we've been memorizing together from Romans chapter 3, printed in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now will you join me as we read together Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You may be seated. As we've been going through our study in Romans, uh, you may have noticed we toggle back and forth between uh, the address of the letter being to different people groups or different uh, uh, parts of, of the church and of the people in the audience. And uh, it's reminded me that we are experts at being selective hearers, of, of hearing the things we want or hearing them in a certain way. It reminds me of the parent who was trying to get their son to eat his green beans. And so the dad told him, son, eat your green beans. They'll put hair on your chest. And he wanted hair on his chest, so he started devouring his green beans. That was the last time their daughter ever ate green beans. They heard the same thing very differently. And I think that's one of the challenges for us as we go through this study in Romans is having ears to hear the things that God would speak to us. We hear things like the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and somehow our hearts insert the words, all of their ungodliness and unrighteousness, and, and excluding ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are soft. Father, that you would help us to find hope in Christ 
in these words today. That you meet us where we're at, but you never are content to leave us there. May we leave today not just more informed, but changed more into the image of Christ. For his glory we pray. Amen. Verses 9 and 10 here are sort of a transitional statement. They, they summarize what has come before and they introduce uh, what is coming now. Uh, if you go back and look in verse 6, you'll see a statement that was made there by Paul where he says, He will render God, He will render to each one according to His works. And here he just simply unfolds the same thing, that he's going to reward and judge according to what men do. We've seen that for the religious person, that's not based on possessing the law. That is to misunderstand the role of the law. We've seen that for those who are a part of the covenant community of God's people, that it's not based on that, that they get a pass. That's to misunderstand the covenant. But rather, we see again and again in this section that God will judge people according to what they do, to their works. And in this passage this morning, we're going to have four statements that all are marked in the text by the word for. And that word is there because it means a further explanation. It, it, it sort of gives a basis and an argument to clarify the statements that Paul has made. And so really here he's going to make four, four statements. The first one we see in verse 11. And he says, for God is impartial. And so you see the first four statement right there in verse 11. And this is the overarching idea that Paul has in this particular text. This is saying the very same thing he said in verse 6. In verse 6, he said it positively. He said, God will render to each one according to his works. And here he says it in the negative. For God does not show partiality. This teaching is all over Scripture. Ephesians 6, 9, there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3, 25, God, with God there is no partiality. Galatians 2, 6, God shows no partiality. In other words, he's not a respecter of people. He doesn't show favorites. The word partiality comes from a Greek word that I'm not even going to attempt to say this morning. But it's a unique word. It's a, it's a word that you only find in the Scriptures. And it means to receive one upon their face. In other words, to, to receive or accept or welcome someone on the basis of what you see about them. The externals. And so what it's saying here in this verse 11 is God does not treat people based upon what they look like outwardly. What they look like in their, in, in their lives, whether they're rich or poor or what ethnicity. God does not look at people outwardly. If you think about that for a moment, this is one of those areas where we are completely the opposite of God. We can only receive people based on what we see about them. I don't know about you, but I'm not a very good heart reader. 
and I have a really hard time reading minds. I, I cannot see the inner person. So when we look at each other and, and accept one another and, and make uh, assessments of one another and welcome or, or not welcome one another, we do it entirely based on the externals of what we see. We cannot help but do that. It is part of fallen human nature. It's part of human nature, of a finite knowledge. The best of people are partial. However, God is impartial. He doesn't judge based on what He sees. Now, there are two important words here that, that often are used in conversations about this, and they're often blurred with one another. They're the words equity and equality. They don't appear in our text, but the ideas are really crucial to understanding uh, what Paul is getting at here. When you think of the word equity, it means fairness, right? It means to be fair to people, uh, to, to treat people in a fair way. When, when things are different among people, we say that's not fair. That's equity. Equality is different. It means the same, right? An equal sign in math. Two things are equal. They are the same. So equality means to treat people the same. And I would posit to you in this text, when it says God is not partial or God does not show partiality, what it's saying is that He treats us fairly. But in the text we'll see in a moment, He does not necessarily treat us the same. That brings us to our second four. It's in verse 12. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, God treats two different groups of people here differently on the basis of how they relate to the law. We understand this. I have four kids. I, as a parent, attempted to treat them fairly, but I didn't feel it was my duty as a parent to treat them equally. I would never say, well, I'm going to leave my 12-year-old at home, so I guess I could leave my 2-year-old at home. No, we would treat our children based on their abilities and their, and their personalities and their, and their knowledge. And, and we see this principle that God treats men fairly, but not the same. Right? He judges them all, but there are two groups that the passage outlines. There are those who are without the law, and there are those who are under the law. Or a better translation would be those who are in the law who live in the law, right? There were those who were the Jews who had the law of God, the Ten Commandments. They had all the other laws of the Old Testament. They had the words of the prophets. They had those things, and they were in the law. They were to live in that. And then there were those who didn't have that. Now, before we go a little further here, let me just say this. And we don't want to miss this point out of verse 12, but there's something common about both of these groups, and that is that they all sinned. Those with the law sinned, and those without the law also sinned. They are all judged. They will all perish. In other words, they are all under the wrath of God. They are all sinners. They all need a Savior. Uh, Douglas Moo, in his commentary, would write that the Jew 
cannot claim an exemption uh, or an acceptance because he has the law. And the Gentile cannot claim an exemption because he doesn't. But that all are sinners kept up under the law, under the wrath of God. In verse 13, Paul goes on and he begins to talk more about this one group of those with the law. And he's going to give us a bit of how God treats these two groups differently, but fairly. The first group is, as I mentioned, those with the law, the Jew, the religious person. Uh, Next Sunday in the passage Brian will preach on, we'll find that these are people who say, we rely on the law. We know the will of God. We approve of the Scriptures. We instruct others from it. We guide the blind. We give light to the darkness. We teach the foolish and children. They'll boast in their reliance of the law. And yet, they fail to understand this, that those with the law, the presence of the law in their life simply exists to increase their obligation and their responsibility. That with knowledge comes responsibility. Back to my example of parenting. I expected more from the 10-year-old than the 2-year-old. God expects more from those with the law than those without. To whom much is given, much is required. And you see here, so God treats all men fairly, but He does not treat them all the same. Firstly, in this exhortation in verse 13 to those under the law or in the law, we see that they must pay a greater attention to the Word of God. The word used there for hearers is is a word used to describe people who are supposed to listen well. For example, it's used of students, right? If you're a student, one of your jobs day in and day out is to listen, to to listen to instruction, to, to receive knowledge, right? It is, it's, it's sort of a description of your profession. I am a professional listener to others if I'm a student. And here it says that, that, that they are to be not only hearers of the law, but to go beyond that and become doers. In other words, they're not given the option of being auditors of God's law. You know what an auditor is? Sits in a class listens to the class, but doesn't have to take the exams, right? They get, they get to be scot-free. They just sort of sit there and soak it all in, and they don't have to do any of the work. That's not an option given to us who are given the law of God. You know, I've been to a lot of uh, conferences over the years, many, many, many. In fact, I was looking the other day on my bookshelf. I've been to the Family Life Marriage Conference at least seven, maybe eight times, because I've got the folders on the bookshelf to show for it. And you know, what those, you know what those folders mean? Eight folders down there means I have the perfect marriage. Did you know that? Because going to the conference and listening to the teachings eight times means I have to have a good marriage, right? Not necessarily. Because hearing does not equal doing. How many of us have folders of all kinds of things stuck on our shelves? How many of us have all of the sermons we've ever heard preached somewhere? You know, as I look around, one thing I can say this morning is uh, that this church, 
we preach the Word of God, which means a couple of things. One, it means you are incredibly privileged and blessed to hear the Word of God preached every Sunday. But I can also say with as much passion and conviction, you are also very responsible for what you hear. And you will be held to that account because you will fit into the category, most of us who come regularly, we fit into the category of to those whom much is given. Much will be required. Secondly, on verse 13, I just want to highlight this. At the very end, there's a little problematic phrase. It says, but the doers of the law, uh, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. And if you read that, just in isolation, you might say, whoa, that sounds like salvation by works. What's Paul saying here? Um, in the larger context, it can't mean that. And so I'm in agreement with some, such as John Stott, who would say that this is a hypothetical. If we could keep the law, we might be justified. Uh, we only have to go back 10 minutes to our congregational reading that we read together in Romans 3 to understand that there is no one who does good. There's none who seek. No, not one, including me. And so Paul here is not laying down this idea you've been justified by works, but rather the principle he's trying to get at here is that when it comes to the law or when it comes for us, for example, to the gospel, to the word of, of Christ, when it comes to those things, the only thing that matters is doing. Is doing. The law demands perfection. Jesus highlighted this in his ministry when he told the story of the, the of two builders. And he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and builds or does them is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. The one who hears these words of mine and does them. Then you jump into verse 14 and 15 and we look at the second group, the other group that Paul is addressing. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Here we see some evidences. You know, remember verse 12 said, for those who sin without the law also perish. Without the law. They also perish. And someone might sit up and say, wait a minute, time out. How can people who don't have the law perish because they don't keep the law. And Paul's going to address this point now. And he's going to point to some evidences. This is almost like you're in a courtroom. And the first evidence that people know the law, he's going to point to as an external evidence. He's going to say that the Gentiles, even though they don't have the law, are not a lawless people. How do we know this? Because we see it. We see it outwardly in what they do. They do what the law requires. They do it by nature. The passage there, that word by nature is the Greek word phusis. We get it from physical, from the, the things seen, the natural things. Uh, we see men doing the things that God's law requires instinctively and innately as we see things in nature that just are, right? Rain falls. The sun shines. 
winds blow, birds fly, fish swim, and people are moral beings. People do. And they make judgments on what is done. Morality is an inescapable part of humanity. In fact, if we had a person who we said that person has zero moral compass whatsoever, they have, they have no moral sense whatsoever, we call that a psychopath, a broken person, a very broken person. I remember reading a book in my ethics, one of the ethics classes I had for my D-Men work, and, and uh, we had to read a book by an author, and the title of the book was What We Can't Not Know. I'll say that again slowly. What we can't not know. And he went through the Ten Commandments and said that, as Elder, uh, Elder Paul Crow mentioned, that, that you go around the world into all of these different places and, and look at the ethical uh, understandings and worldviews of people. You will find the Ten Commandments all over the place. There's sort of a common moral compass that is given to humanity. It's not just a, a moral, it's not just a, a social construct. Right and wrong are not just things that are decided because more people say it's right than say it's wrong. It's not a democratic process. We all come with this preloaded sense of it that we cannot escape. We see it in two things. We see it in what we do and we see it in what we demand. For example, we see it in what we demand because we have expectations of others. When others sin against us, we know it. And it's not simply because we were taught that it was wrong. We know we've been wronged. Right? We demand to be loved by others. And so we know that there is a moral virtue to love. And as Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, the measure by which we use it will be measured to us. We, we hold a measuring stick to others. We make demands. But then we also see this reality in what we do. And look what the verse says. It's very interesting. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Notice what it doesn't say. It's not saying here that the law was written on their hearts. It doesn't even say that the works, plural, of the law are written on their hearts. It says the work, singular. This is the only time that phrase is used with the word work in the singular. The work of the law is written on their hearts. What does that mean? It means the purpose. The purpose for which the law was given to those who had the law that same purpose, in other words, we are, we are created in the same way that we interact with the, with the behaviors of others and ourselves in the same way, for the same purposes. We may not have the written account of the Word, but we have it dwelling in us that we know. We may not know in writing that it is wrong to steal, but when someone steals from us, we know it's wrong. The purpose of the law is written on our hearts. What is the purpose of the law? Romans 3, 19 and 20. At the very end of this section we're looking at, it's going to say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the work of the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. They have the work, the purpose of God's law written on them. And that shows in what they demand and what they do. Secondly, we have an internal evidence. At the same time, while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, that word while means at the same time. So at the same time as we're doing these things, we're demanding these things of others externally, we also have something happening within us. And if you pop the hood, if you could, and looked into that unseen part of man that God created, you would find something there called the conscience. It comes from two words in the Greek put together. It means together with, to know, and to see. In the Latin, it's the same thing. Con means with, and seant means to know, to know with. What is the conscience? It is that part of man that God has created with which we see or know, but not in the sense of with our eyes. You ever talk to somebody and then at the end of it they say, oh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. They didn't see it with their eyes. They understood, right? They understood with their minds and their hearts. And so it's the part of us with which we see things that isn't our eyes. Manuel Kant wrote this. He said, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and steadily we reflect upon them. The first is the starry heavens above me. The second, the moral law within me. That We have a, a sense of an awe. There's something within us with which we see and understand the world around us. It is an interpreter. It's imprinted on the heart. It says here that it bears witness as it, as it sees the thoughts and, and the conflict between thoughts. Have you ever had a conflict between your thoughts? You think of when you hear the word conscience, um, perhaps you think back to the, the iconic image of conscience, Jiminy Cricket. Right? Jiminy Cricket, the, the voice talking in the ear against. And it was this conflicting of thoughts right, with Pinocchio that, that he wanted this, but the conscience was saying that. And it was this conflicting of thoughts between the two. The conscience would be an inner lawyer. This passage is filled with sort of legal language. It says that the conscience will be accusing or defending us as our thoughts are in conflict. In other words, your heart and my heart has a, has a lawyer on retainer. Always present. And we can't get away with it or from it. And when we cross over God's law, whether we have it written before us or not, it triggers something in us. I was trying to think of the best way to explain this, and, I, and the thought that came to my mind was, it's like the invisible fence with a dog. You know what I'm talking about? The invisible fence, where's the collar? As it gets near the fence, it starts to beep. It, it doesn't see the fence, but it sort of knows the fence is there, right? It's, it's, uh, the dog with the invisible fence is the dog without the law. The dog that has the fence, that is the law. It's easy to see. It's right there. There's the fence. Don't go outside of it. But, but the invisible fence is 
sort of like the dog without the law. And as it gets nearer to it, it begins to beep. And it can't but help pay attention to that beep. Now, not all dogs do that. Um, we have family members that had beagles. And if, if the incentive was strong enough, they would just make a run at it and endure a shock for a few seconds, and then they'd be free. They would just blow right through their conscience and just keep on going. Others are a little smarter about it. I had another friend whose dog was really smart. The dog figured out that if it laid next to the fence and let the collar beep until the battery ran out, when the beeping stopped, it could go. And so it figured out it could just abuse its conscience long enough, right, that eventually it would soften it down to the point where it was hardened. And it could cross the line without feeling the shock. That's what our conscience is like. I know it's a rough image. I don't want anyone to go away from here thinking that pastors said we're like people with collars on and shock fences. But that's what it is. It alerts us. You know, pop psychology today says that the conscience is an annoyance. It's something to overcome. It's societal. It's oppressive. If you want a good read on this, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, talks directly to this subject for uh, a whole section of the book. And, and it says that um, it's societal's today, today's society wants to blame the conscience. It, if we could just unshackle ourselves from this lawyer within, then we would be free. Right? But it's a dangerous thing to take the moral compass that God puts in us and to discard it. It's a bad idea if you're a sailor to go out on the seas without a compass. If you're a sailor, you don't get to invent your own maps. Right? You might think you do, but that is not the world you live in. And there's nothing in man that can ever escape from the fact that God will always be alerting us to a true north, so to speak. We see it from day one. Adam and Eve in the garden. Society didn't shape them. Parents didn't tell them to do this or not. It wasn't their, their church upbringing. They sinned and they knew it. It was the lawyer within. It was their conscience. And they hid themselves instinctively hid themselves. So, one day, our conscience is going to speak. Verse 16, we'll close with this. One day, our conscience is going to speak. And what's it going to say? We've already seen a couple of these points. We've seen already that there will be a day when God will judge men. That was a few weeks back. We've also seen that the gospel uh, contains judgment that the two are not antithetical to one another, that the gospel requires God's judgment. As one author would say, until we understand our deserving of judgment, until we understand the seriousness of sin, until we believe that God's judgment is just, then we will never understand how amazing grace is. It is precisely because of the seriousness of sin and the reality of the final judgment that God's grace is so amazing. So those are things we've seen before, but the new part of this verse 16 is this, that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That word secrets there is the Greek word kryptos, from which we get the English word crypt. A crypt is a, is a sort of a cave or a place hidden out of sight, right? It's, it's unseen, it's underground. 
And so what we see here is that on that day, God will judge the secret things, the inner motivations and the thoughts. They'll play the wiretap that has been on our hearts all our lives. And the God who sees all, knows all, everything we've ever said, done, or thought, who knows us better than ourselves, will judge us with equity and fairness. In Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10, uh, the verse 9, it's very well known. You've probably heard this numerous times. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 gives the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God knows the hearts of men. And God's judgment of men, back to where we began, will be impartial because He knows them perfectly and fully. And so what are some takeaways? When it comes to our conscience, we should listen to it and not loathe it. We should not harden ourselves. We should not see how close we can get to the fence line. Uh, without being in trouble. We should listen to our lives and learn. The, the problem with the Jew and the law, the one under the law, was that they heard it but didn't do it. The problem with the Gentile was that they did the law, but they didn't listen to what that told them. And those two groups encompass all of us today, so learn and listen. And then also we should limit what the conscience can do. The conscience is critical, but it does not have the power to change us. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that verse is the answer. And that verse is the will of God for His people. That in Christ, we would experience the cleansing and the purifying of our conscience. Away from dead works. Away from those works that don't amount to anything. Or away from uh, the works that we've not done, but we minimize. And the works that we tend to maximize, right? We, we tend to be very kind to ourselves and harsh to others when we ought to be harsh to ourselves and kind to others. And here it says that the blood of Christ is the only way that God purifies the conscience, bringing it alive and bringing to us those wonderful promises of the new covenant. You know, there is a group of people that the Scriptures say do have the Word of God written on their hearts. It's a promise given in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33, where God says that He will write his law, upon the hearts, not of all men, but of his people. He does that through the renewing and the regenerating and the washing work of Christ, which Christ won for us by the shedding of his blood on the cross, that, that we are never going to keep the law, but he has, and he has kept it for all those who will repent of their sins and put their faith in him. That is the only way, my friends, that we will stand on that day in the gospel, and stand in the judgment of our secrets.
Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his work redeeming. Thank you for the spirit that he sends who brings to life a renewed heart, a heart that hears and longs to do. But even then, Lord, even those of us who know that still struggle to do. Father, may we come to Christ every moment of every day. I pray that we would be a people who not only hear, but do the word, that he would get much glory, and it would be for our good. And we ask these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.